Well, it, it, it was, I think really I was about, I was eight when I came, but it was rather kind of exciting because living on an island, you tended to see ships all the time going by. And I used to think, gosh, one day I might be in one of those. Um, it was a wonderful journey. So it took 10 days to get here. Okay. So we sailed and then we had a train. We, we got as far as Italy, I suppose. And then you had to do a train journey right through the Alps over to France. Then a train. So all these things were brand new to me. I've never seen trains before or um, snow yes. topped hills. I suppose the weather was a little yes. bit different. <laughs> and the ferry from France, to, you actually saw the White Cliffs of Dover, so that was the first time I actually saw the White Cliffs of Dover really were white. Disappointed because we were told the streets were paved with gold, but of course we got here and found, uh, hmm, they're not. <laughs> um, it was grey and cold. So where we were used to blue skies, it seems, you now had grey skies. Um. I remember my first trip to Felixstowe, and the sea was grey. So yes, so it was different. Um, snow was also quite a challenging thing to come to terms with, because if you think about it, you can't describe snow, yeah. or you can't describe cold. Nobody can understand it until you actually touch it. Yes, so we, we lived, we came to Ipswich, and I went to school. Um, so, my, so, we, so I went through primary school, secondary school. My sister and brother were here before me, so they kind of could give me one or two pointers. Yeah. But yes, it was back in the... Uh, so I was here in the late 50s when we were roughly about the only black, black children in Ipswich. Yeah. Well, what was the experience for you as one of, you know, very few? Well, it was... It was it was interesting in a way. I mean, we knew we'd arrived in the country and we knew we were different. But I think that one of the things I particularly always noticed was the fact that English people tended to want to point out all your differences to you. They, yeah. they could clearly come up to you and tell you that, oh, you know, your nose is different or you're, you've all got curly hair. Or <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it was, it was interesting to have things pointed out that you, you didn't ever think about before. Because within your own family, nobody says <laughs> something's wrong. It's a yes, so, yes. But I didn't find it difficult making friends. We lived in a road where there were lots of families. Yeah. What part of Ipswich? So we, off the Bramford Road. Okay. So my dad bought a house in Rendlesham Road, yeah. and that was where we started off living until we moved to a bigger house. But no, we, we settled in quite well, I think. Getting, you know, you had to come to terms. You had to learn things that we haven't done before. Yeah. But I think that was all part and part, for me, that was part of the excitement of being in a new country. Oh, brilliant. And, and so in school, what was that like? What was your favorite subjects? My favorite subjects initially were history, English, and geography, because I loved the idea of just finding out all about the rest of the world now, because we'd left, I'd left a tiny island, and you now realise how huge, you've got a huge world out there, let's find out as much as you can about it, yeah. So school I enjoyed, um, I was lucky I think in that I always had teachers who inspired you to do better. So I felt, you know, I put, um, and our parents were tending to push us because they had to work in production. My father went to work at Cranes, my mother worked uh, for a while at the Ipswich Steam Laundry, so there were jobs where they were in manufacturing production. And they made it quite clear to us that they would prefer us not to have to work in, in those environments. Yeah. So I guess that, that kind of leads me onto sort of your uh, journey after school. 
and, and what what was your interest and, and where did you where did that take you in terms of maybe your career as well and how did it start off? Well, I I was I think I was at the age when I was due to leave. It was fifteen was the age of leaving, but that year for me it, the rules changed and you could stay one more year till you're sixteen. So my father agreed that I could stay another year. So I did um, administration shorthand typing, you know, geared on the fact that I would want to work in an office. Okay. So I then had two years at the college, and um, my first job in the secretarial world was in insurance, which was unusual. It was very rare that uh, anyone, any black person got a job within the, the world of, you know, because some office manager had to decide he, that you were better than someone else. Yeah. So yeah, so I did start off in Princess Street working an insurance company. I carried on studying though, so I did extra GCEs and also eventually, um, although I moved through admin, P, I became a PA and then into management, I then got caught up in yoga, in the world of in yoga, so I did a lot of yoga, meditation, and the teachers kept leaving. and. I complained once to the adult education head, teachers are always leaving, we don't have, and he says, well, why on earth don't you do it? So that motivated me to take the adult and education teacher certificate, and then I did start, so I, as, just as an interest, so it was a hobby of mine, and then it turned into something that I did, and so I taught yoga and relaxation, meditation, stress management, I suppose, in adult education class, evening classes, all over the county. Wow. For something like 35 years. Wow. And, <laughs> and so that's been, been one of your main passions. And so what do you yes. enjoy about it? What, what is it? Well, it was this concept of we live in a very stressful world, yeah. but really just by turning your mind inwards, using other physical activity, breathing techniques, you can actually calm. And it worked, I found it worked for me. And amazingly, it worked for hundreds of other people who I taught throughout the years. I think a lot of people underestimate that, mm, the, mm. The, how powerful it is. Yes, I mean, I, it's just, in, it was incredible. I mean, I still now meet, since I've retired, I still meet people who I've taught over the years, and, you know, we talk about the fact that, you know, they say it's helped them get through lots of difficult times in their lives. Just what we need now, really. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's speaking of now, I mean, yes. we're in a very uh, uncertain and, and uh, interesting sort of uh, you know, well, we'd be living at the moment mm -hmm. with the lockdowns and the coronavirus. I mean, how has that affected yourself and, and maybe your business as well? Yeah, well, it's, it's been, I think initially, firstly, it was the fact that I could, couldn't really see my family as much. I couldn't see my grandsons. I couldn't meet up with friends, so we couldn't go out for lunch or, you know, do the things we did, like theatre. We tended to go to London to theatre or just have visits out we just we couldn't visit anywhere so the concept of being you know just living within your small area yeah um i found that difficult but uh, i mean i i do um i do bereavement support work at the moment now so since i've been retired i've done a lot more and i work for an organization called cruise bereavement care right. and we anyone who is bereaved for whatever reason no matter how long ago if they're, fine, if they're still struggling, they contact the, the, the charity and we work with them to try and get them into a better place to help them through the process of grief. 
And so during lockdown, I've been doing a lot, lot more of that. And gosh, what a time to be doing that kind of work. So I've spent a lot more time working with clients. Yeah. I supervise a group of six volunteers who also work with clients. And so that's, that's, it's been quite a revelation, really, to help. You know, we're helping them to get through this awful thing that we've been going through. And, of course, we are, we are coming towards the end, or particularly the, the end of uh, you know, lockdown. Not only that, but just allowing us to maybe live some sort of a normal life. Has that maybe affected your future plans? And, and if so, what are they? Well, I think initially, first and foremost, he's going to be able to travel a lot more yeah. once travelling <laughs> becomes something that we can do widely. Um, I've done a lot of travelling, really. I mean, I suppose I have, I have been, I've seen, been to most places within the UK. I've been to Australia and America, and my daughter got married in Hawaii. So we've and been to Canada. So yes, so I've had, I've seen lots and lots of places, but I tend to do more. Yeah. And um, I'm looking also at broadening the scope in which we can help people who are suffering from grief by using perhaps my skills with yoga and meditation a lot more. So I'm looking towards that and maybe even heading towards doing a degree in psychology. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's, I think it's, I think this um, awful lockdown, you know, this awful pandemic has made everybody rethink what, what they want to do. And a year ago, everyone was saying, I hope this is going to make everyone nicer to each other. Yeah. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not sure that's quite happened, but it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's been interesting. Yes. It's been very interesting. Um, just so, just going back to to Montserrat, and mm-hmm. what, when was the last time you was there? How often did you go? We well, obviously we, the cost of flying. So even my parents only could go back. It took a long, long time before we could revisit. Um, I pers- I went two years ago my, for my seventieth birthday. I did actually go back there again, but it was still sad to see all the ash lying everywhere Um, there's not an awful lot they can do to clear it up and it was not much different to when I went there um, 15 years before in in, in fact it seemed better because then it was freshly laid and it looked it was a tourist attraction but now it's amazing how the trees and vegetation has all grown up through the the ash so it kind of just looks as if it needs something it needs someone to do something about it now But yes, I do, I do feel for the people who are still there. But um, there was another. Uh, it wasn't Montserrat. It was Saint Vincent, wasn't it? Which was yes, recently. recently had theirs. Yeah. Yes, but in Mon- I mean Montserrat, for example, um, I don't know if many people do this, but George Martin, who is the Beatles' manager, built a studio in Montserrat back in I think '79 to '89. And nearly all the stars, because, you know, we would be watching Top of the Pops and seeing our fam- members of our family dancing on some of the police videos <laughs> and things. And we said, God. But unfortunately, they had a... So Montserrat is also in, li- in the line of um, you know, hurricanes. So yeah. they did have a hurricane, Hugo, which damaged that studio. Right. So when I was there, I was thinking, gosh, isn't that a shame? Because everything is, you know, there's nothing they can do about it anymore. But, um, yes, yeah, so it is, it is a tiny island. It's beautiful, but it does get things happen to it <laughs> yeah is there quite a big community in Ipswich um, of, of, uh, no you know. no most of my family most of my father's family stayed in London okay. they, they felt Ipswich was too small my father liked the idea of being in a small town to raise the children because 
you know, and, and the fact that we were near the coast yeah. was appealing. So, but for, based on the high, number yes, home, it? yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's basically, it was just my family. It consisted of just our family, which were seven people, mum and dad, and five children. Yeah. So I've got one brother and four, um, three sisters. So we, we, so but they visited us quite a lot. Yeah. And then as time passed, they, they really was quite. They, they loved to say they're visiting their country cousins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, it's, it's been really lovely having you here. Thank you for your time. Okay. And hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. both culture and innovation skills. He was also appointed to the Privy Council between 2009 and 10 and currently holds the position of Shadow Secretary for Justice. Rianne Jones caught up with him recently to get his views on how the Afro-Caribbean community has progressed within the British societies. So hello, I'm Rianne Jones and I've been working with the Suffolk Windrush Select Committee on a project to celebrate Windrush Day of 2021. I'm from Ipswich myself, and I'm of mixed race, Jamaican and British heritage, third generation. Um, my nan and granddad came over to the UK in the 50s during the Windrush, and it's so wonderful to be involved in a project to celebrate Windrush Day. And recently, during university, I um, created a campaign called Home Wasn't Built on a Day, which was all about um, celebrating and educating the UK on the achievements and contributions of the Windrush generation as part of building our national story. And more on that can be found on my Twitter at Rianne underscore Jones or Instagram at created by Rianne. Now, today as part of our project, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our fantastic guest, David Lammy, who I'm sure needs no introduction, but um, David Lammy is the Labour Member of Parliament for Tottenham, where he was born and raised. After being elected for the seventh time, he was appointed Shadow Secretary of State for Justice. As part of this role, David built on his landmark review of the criminal justice system, which explored the treatment of and outcomes for black and minority ethnic people in British courts and prisons. David also previously served as Culture Minister and Higher Education Minister under the Blair and Brown Labour governments. And it's really great to have David involved with us today in our project celebrating Windrush Day. And David himself is a second generation of Guyanese heritage. His parents arrived to the UK from Guyana during the 1970s as part of the Windrush generation. And on top of his political accolades, David is renowned for his role in pushing for justice for those victims of the Windrush scandal and also victims of London's Grenfell fire. Now, hi, David. It's nice to Hello. meet you. Hello. Hi. Great to be with you. And how are you doing today? How, how is Well, that? I'm very well, uh, but it's always busy for me. So, um, well, but busy. I imagine. Thanks for um, fitting us in today. And as you know, lockdown has been really tough over the last year for everyone. And I wondered what, what have been some of the ways in which lockdown has affected members of the African Caribbean community and the Windrush generation in the UK? Oh, look, I think in many, many ways. Um, look... I think the biggest place to start is very sadly the disproportionality that we see in the number of people who've died as a result mm -hmm. of the pandemic in black communities. 
And that means that there is actually a lot of grief around. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be black in Britain and not know someone who has died or someone who knows someone. And I certainly have an uncle who lost his life in New York. I have, um, and then in the wider community, I've got a classmate who sadly died age 45. Mm -hmm. And of course, in Tottenham, there are many, many people that have passed away. So I think grief is the starting point. Yeah. yeah. I think worry is the next thing. And the worry comes in lots of different ways. It comes with children being out of school and placing pressure on families, parents worrying about how they educate their children at home and keep down a job, worried that, you know, children disappearing into a world of Xbox and game consoles and social media and the inability to police that, drifting into criminality and things, very sadly. Um, the stresses and strains that um, the recession puts on families because we have to be honest, uh, by and large, African-Caribbean communities in this country are not communities of wealth. Mm -hmm. There is still tremendous poverty across black communities in the UK. So the context of this pandemic is very hard. And then, of course, we've got the vaccine hesitancy mm -hmm. and um, sound historic reasons why black communities are sceptical, suspicious of health services, suspicious of pharmaceutical companies. Um, it's not always about, I'm never going to take the vaccine, but it is often about, I want to see a, a hell of a lot of others, <laughs> white people take the vaccine before I'm going to risk it uh, on me. And so it's been, a, it's been a period of tremendous pressure, I think, for African-Caribbean communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, especially with how you say um, everyone in the black community knows someone that has been affected by COVID. And I know with my family, it took a great lot of convincing some families to take up the vaccine. So, yeah, completely. So it's just stressful. <laughs> it's just more stress on top of stress already, if you know what I mean. Especially when... Like, and the other thing I would say about our communities is, you know, we ought to think of the wider health service. You know, we're also frontline workers, whether in the health service, public sector, all of that places us at risk in the, in the, in the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, the face of those who were dying were public sector workers, uh, often throughout this crisis, at the beginning of this crisis. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's stress upon stress upon stress is the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I, saw, I saw on Twitter recently, you posted an LBC interview clip of a caller claim that you can't be of African and Caribbean descent as well as being English. In your view, have black people been accepted as full citizens of Britain? I think that's a work in progress. Mm. I think and I think that black people are up on the whole for being British because of the empire. And so they're more comfortable saying I'm British, black British, mm -hmm. African Caribbean British. But what I was challenging in that interview was my right to be English, because actually I'm not Welsh, I'm not Scottish. On bare census forms, you can put, you know, black Welsh, uh, black Scottish. You think about people like um, Shirley Bassey um, <laughs> as, a, as a Welsh woman who's black in origin. Of course, you can put that down. But if, on our census form, you cannot put that you are African-Caribbean English. 
And the problem is there is a growing movement in this country that Englishness is a sort of ethnic nationalism. It's an ethnic national identity that you have to be Anglo-Saxon, Celt, um, you know, and I think that's a problem. It means that you end up leaving Englishness to the National Front and the BMP and the EDL and others on the extreme. Um, we have to claim it. We have to claim our heritage. And look, I know when I go back to the Caribbean and I go back very regularly, I'm very proud of my Guyanese roots. And I've got family in Jamaica and Barbados, mm-hmm. Antigua, right across the Caribbean. But I, you know, I don't think they say, David, you're Caribbean when you're land, you know. Uh, I'm English. And so it's important to claim that. And I think it's a work in progress. I think I think there's still a lot to do um, um, in explaining to people why we are here, um, how we come to be here and our story, which is not just can't be confined just to Black History Month. Uh, you know, uh, British history, English history is black history is the point. And um, there's a lot more to do. I think back to at school and we didn't cover any black British history at all. Um, But you did, you see. I mean, uh, this week you'll have seen that the commemoration of the First World War uh, uh, left out the African soldiers that contributed and they were dumped in mass graves and didn't get a headstone. And my campaign for an apology and for writing that wrong, fortunately, has has you know come to a head, and the Commonwealth War Graves Commission have uh, addressed this issue and are now going to address it. The truth is, when you say you didn't see it, it was there, but it was just hidden. It was just left off the page. Um, we think of the First World War in terms of the Battle of the Somme and Wilfred Owen and mm-hmm. poetry, and you know. And we leave out the East Africa campaign. No one knows that the first shots were fired in Africa. Um, we, we, we leave out the King's African Riflemen. We, we, we leave out the West Indian Regiment. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it would have lifted my shoulders at school if I had learned about that. It would have lifted your shoulders. I'm afraid still to this day in schools, there are children, white and black, not learning that history. And, mm-hmm. uh, and as a consequence, uh, there's a sort of delusion about this country and its history and about the contribution that we have made, not just since the Windrush, by the way, uh, that's also a myth, but hundreds of years we have made a contribution. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this project is all about uplifting our community and celebrating the people of the Windrush generation. Um, but of course, we must also acknowledge the massive injustices of the Windrush scandal. So what does the recent Windrush scandal mean to you? Well, I called it a national day of shame in Parliament when that scandal broke. Mm-hmm. Um, it's to say that there is an inextricable link between the people of the Caribbean and this country, and that will always be the case, because we arrived in the Caribbean as a result of being ripped from the continent of Africa And in that process, we lost our language, we lost our culture, uh, we lost our religion, we lost a fundamental part of one's identity. It was profound and huge. Mm -hmm. And the future generations grew up having to find their way as enslaved people, Mm 
um, and built something. We got our freedom after a few hundred years, but it was not a freedom that it meant that we would give compensated or given any wealth. We had to, again, build something new. My ancestors set up the village of Hopetown in Guyana. What an appropriate name mm-hmm. uh, uh, for my ancestors who created something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And that means that we've got, there's a fragility in our community, a, a fragility yet to be fully understood and acknowledged. And, you know, when I, I'm very privileged to travel and, you know, when I go to places like New Zealand or, or Canada, where they talk about indigenous communities, there is a respect and an understanding of the way in which Maori people were treated in New Zealand, uh, the way in which indigenous people were treated in Canada and I don't think we're any different but yet we have not had that reparation that that reconciliation to our understanding um, and people's understanding of where why we're where we are as it were why are we an impoverished community well because we have had you know relatively little time to rebuild again yeah um there are traumas running through our people yet yet we are here in tremendous numbers yet there is joy there is laughter there is carnival there is celebration there is fantastic food mm-hmm. um, in our communities and there is forgiveness because despite it all uh, for example and you're a testimony to this Rianne, um, like my own children you're of mixed background and the truth is black people are falling in love with white people in huge numbers in this country, some of the biggest numbers in the world. Mm-hmm. And that is an indication of love and of overcoming the problems of the past. It's a shame that the government haven't caught up with us, but that is what is happening. So it's a complicated story. It's a story of pain and of hardship, but it's also a story of redemption and power and tremendous beauty as well. Mm-hmm. And um, that is how I sort of reckon with and handle and why I'm so proud to be of African Caribbean background, but why I think it's important that we get to a place in this country where people really, really genuinely uh, approach our community and community relations with a degree of humility and understanding. Definitely. And as black people in the UK, what do you think the key issues that we currently experience and what can we do to raise awareness of these issues and address? Well, just back to your last question, picking up on that, of course, what Windrush revealed was a vulnerability. Um, Many of our community did not have passports, couldn't afford, ready to travel, didn't need them, found themselves the victim of the state in so many ways in a hostile environment where we were low-hanging fruit, denied Mm -hmm. everything we'd worked for, despite building the NHS, backs of our nurses, putting our back into the tube network here in London, the transport system across the country, mm-hmm. treated in that way. And of course, the other themes in the black community is a real issue with the criminal justice system. That's why I did a review into this and looked at all the issues that come out of that. They start, of course, with stop and search, but the pipeline into stop and search is our experience in the education system tremendous scandals in the 1970s and 80s in terms of how the education system worked for black children in this country and there are still profound issues who gets excluded from school in disproportionate numbers who gets sent to the pupil referral unit 
in disproportionate numbers. Despite that, we've got more African-Caribbean young people going to university in Russell Booth universities than ever before in our history. But they're not getting first at the same proportion as their white counterparts. So it's a, it's a complicated picture, but clearly we've discussed health and there are big health inequalities. Why are black women uh, more likely to have uh, mortality in childbirth than their white counterparts? But despite those issues, uh, obstacles, health, criminal justice, housing, let's give you another fact, the majority of black boys born in this country are born above the fourth floor, which means that we are living in, in, in the country's housing estates. Mm -hmm. And living in a housing estate brings other challenges with it. Let's face it. We where's the neighborhood policing gone? Why are black boys carrying knives? Largely because they're scared. Mm -hmm. And then they get arrested. So it's a complicated picture. And there remain really, really big, big, big issues for us in terms of disproportionality in the issues that we face. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd be interested to hear how far do you think we've come in the challenges around identity and citizenship rights since the 1980s, say. Are the challenges the same? The challenges always morph and change, but I'm afraid the obstacle is the same. The obstacle is systemic racism. <laughs> that obstacle has not changed. No. That obstacle <laughs> is still there. Uh, it, we still, we still, it's still, uh, you know, as as the our friends in South Africa and the United States described their battles, they called it the struggle mm -hmm. back in the day, and it's, we're still in the struggle. And so the way I would put this is if the 18th century and before was a battle for our freedom and to throw off the shackles mm -hmm. of colonialism and enslavement, and then we got to the 19th century we got that freedom and we had to build from nothing and then we got to the 20th century and that was a fight for our rights mm -hmm. our rights not to be segregated uh, our rights to basic education employment then the 21st century and we're still at the beginning of this century um rihanna but you'll probably make a more distance than me because you're much younger than i am we're really into a period of reparation and understanding and that moment has not yet come but i'm convinced it will come because i'm heartened by our young people and this is black and white i think young people on the whole do get this stuff they do get race. They want to see change. It's the dinosaurs in charge. It's the Boris Johnsons and the Nigel Farages that hold us back, not the young people. So I am hopeful that we will get there. But we've got a bumpy period because of recession and pandemic and Brexit and other things that are really stirring up the mix and making it difficult. And, you know, some of what we're seeing around the world in these areas is a sort of look at the United States is a sort of holding on to something that they're losing because the demographics are changing, black and minority communities are coming through in bigger numbers. And here, I mean, I think you see in elements of the Conservative Party, we're seeing a sort of desire to go back to empire, an empire that cannot be created, recreated. It should not be recreated. Um, and it's a desire to sort of hold on to something with a small C conservatism, uh, to deny things like systemic racism, which we saw in the Sewell report recently so i'm hopeful because of our young people i'm hopeful because of our tremendous resilience mm -hmm. 
we are the world's most resilient community mm -hmm. but the obstacles that we face remain the same and they're the obstacle of systemic racism and um you're you're obviously someone hugely accomplished and a great role model to my generation and younger generations looking to excel in their careers and learning i wanted to know kind of you know a lot about your accomplishments it'd be great to hear some of the challenges that you've faced to get to where you are now as a second generation of Wendy. well i would say look all across my life um i've been told i can't do things there are a few firsts in my in my backstory first black britain to go to harvard law school uh, i was one of the youngest mps at the age of 26 27 um but let me clear all across my life you know i people have said you can't you know mm -hmm. and when i said i wanted to be a barrister and the careers teacher said that you, i should be a fireman um i wanted to be an mp and the whole system the media said this ain't going to happen so uh, and clearly there are you know i sit here Riyadh, and i'm tired <laughs> i'm tired i don't know if i'm going to make old bones because representing uh, like i try to must must in the end have its stresses whether it's windrush grenfell um fighting for recognition for african soldiers brexit these things do of course take their toll don't they they must do i suspect mm -hmm. unless god is really good and i believe in god so let's see um so you know i remain of christian faith and that matters to me it keeps me going it fills my soul i don't talk about it that much but you know for me i couldn't do this without my faith i couldn't do this without the caribbean i go back there very very frequently i take my kids back there i've got a wonderful family friends who've known me for a lot longer than i've been in public the public eye uh, but you just have to read um the posts underneath my twitter posts and facebook posts and, uh, to understand i'm afraid the racism and the nastiness that's out there um that um that, that i have to wade through and it's wade through is a good way of putting it because it's pretty it's pretty nasty yeah do you ever take any kind of breaks from social media things like that to... uh, well look i i so look, there are some stereotypes about about being a black man there are stereotypes that you're thick stereotypes that you're lazy uh, stereotypes that you're sort of a womanizer and part of my social media strategy i'm pretty prolific on social media strategy is to counter that business of being lazy or thick mm -hmm. it's a great way for people to say well, he, he can't be thick <laughs> he's working the whole damn time right so that's part of my strategy in in our public in our public life to and it also lifts the spirits of our community because you know um they can look at my feeds and they hear someone expressing things as they are expressing it in the barbershop mm -hmm. <laughs> a little bit more sanitized uh, but they and look there has to be hope there has to be hope because if there is no hope then people they 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 they, they riot so um i recognize that my feed is not just about me 
it's it's about a representation in our democratic system mm -hmm. that allows people to say that's my guy that's what he's saying i'm glad he's there and that's as it that's that's as it has to be uh, i find my soul food in the and i sometimes tweet it uh, in the food that my auntie send me <laughs> that my constituents sent me to build me up as it were <laughs> Uh, whether that's jerk chicken from my Jamaican friends or Guyanese pepper pot from my family. And I, as I say, I go to the Caribbean as soon as we can uh, get out of this flight nonsense that we've got and this, um, you know, inability for international travel. I will be in the Caribbean uh, with my family, uh, resting up on a beach somewhere and, you know, um, sucking in all that that community has to offer uh, i go to the uh, united states quite regularly i have a lot of american african-american friends great people like henry lewis gates and cornell west these are great great black thinkers who again give me fortitude and strength and power so i am fortunate because i have some means to be able to do those things to nourish my soul and as i said i also have my faith so in the end, you know, a lot of what's said I don't take personally because I believe in God. And, you know, God has set me on a path and others on a path. And, you know, people who tweet this nonsense who are racist, they don't really know me. So I don't take it personally because I have a faith. So that, that's how I nourish myself. And, of course, I've got spurs and my love of football and um, cinema and theatre as well. Um I wanted to move the conversation on to the success of your recent book, Tribes. Congratulations on that. And I hear that you're soon to publish the sequel, Out of the Atomized and Divided Culture. I wondered, how is this going and what impact do you hope this book will have on the nation? Well, I'm very excited by my book, Tribes, and I'm glad that people are buying it and it's doing so well. And if you want to understand, I think, a little bit more about me, uh, and you want to understand about what we're confronting in our politics, this new tribalism, then buy the book. Um, it's easy to get. Um, and I hope it informs you. I put a lot, a lot of effort into it. You know, my writing is very much therapy. It's another way in which I work through um, not just the issues confronting me, but the issues confronting our politics and our country uh, as a sort of almost a means of therapy. Actually, my next book isn't quite that title. You know, books change a bit as they're in development. But I am, I have begun working on my next book. And it's a return to this business about uh, the justice system and how it affects our uh, community. Um, but it's not going to be published for a few years because, you know, I'm a busy guy. So my books tend to take three or four years to to complete, to be honest. Um, so it won't be in the shops for a while. Um, and we may have an, an election or something in that meantime, which pushes it back even further. But but I'm very, very excited about the subject matter, learning lots, you know, about the subject matter, because it's also an opportunity to learn when you're writing and read, and to try and bring things that are in academic circles into the mainstream in a mainstream way. That's the opportunity that my writing gives us. I'm looking forward to reading Tribes. It's on my list at the moment. Getting through Natives at the moment by Carla. There's a, there's a chapter in Tribes that I'm very proud of. It's 
all about the African Caribbean community. It's all about growing up in Tottenham. It's about the sacrifice of people like my mother. It's about where we've arrived at, Windrush, knife crime. I'm very, very proud of that chapter. There's another chapter on identity politics, mm -hmm. Grenfell, uh, the white saviour thing, you know, comic relief, and the challenge that I made to comic relief a few years ago because black people were switching off in droves, can't stand those images. <laughs> you know, where are the positive images of Africa in our society? Um, so I think that's a chapter that people will like. Yeah, there's there's quite a lot in tribes that's about soul food, and for black people particularly, I think that will draw the people that will get a lot from. Nice. And um, as a closing question, I'd be interested to know if you have any advice or words of encouragement to the younger generations of listeners, and if what advice would you give to your younger? Oh, I would say uh, your reach should outstretch your grasp um that you know be prepared to be told you can't do something you've got to prove people wrong and attend to your resilience we are a resilient people mm -hmm. you know we are resilient people but you have to attend to that you have to you have to work on 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 what makes you able to face the storms in a system that still has systemic racism within it in the workplace um, you know, when your kids are going to school and all these things that, that, that do are wearing. Uh, I've talked about some of the things that help me, but everyone's different. Uh, allyship is important. I'm not a believer in a sort of black nationalism you know, that sort of is all about blackness and not about whiteness, if you see what I mean. Um, we're 4% of the population. And therefore... In this country, this ain't the United States, in this country, it is about allies who are, do not look like you. Let me just be absolutely clear about it. Many of my mentors over the years have not been black. They've been white in the workplace, in law, in politics. I ally myself in politics. I ally myself with women. I ally myself with LGBTQ communities to grow the numbers, if you like, from that 4% to grow it to a much bigger number so that you can engage in the battle. So I think allyship is really important as well. Don't don't disappear into a kind of um, weary, um, woe is me. <laughs> uh, it's all, well, that ain't going to help anybody. And, you know, remember, it's a struggle. As I said, it's a struggle. And as my mother would have said, and I think this is the most important thing to remember, uh, my mother used to say to me when I was downcast, low, depressed, live up to your ancestors' prayers. Mm. However hard you're finding it, it ain't as hard as your ancestors. Live up to their prayers. They prayed that you would be here, that you would be persevering, mm -hmm. that you would acquire economic strength, that you would overcome, and that you would better yourself the lives of your children and grandchildren. Mm -hmm. live up to their prayers. That's why, as my mother would say, don't bother come tell me you're going to pick up a knife. Because <laughs> <laughs> that ain't the way forward. Uh, or selling drugs. That ain't the way forward. We are better than that. That was great. Thank you, David. That brings our conversation to a close. Thanks so much for taking the time out. To time comes.
And at the time when they are supposed to pay you back, if they are brave enough, they may give you a call and say, give me a little extension. If they are, in my experience, they will not call you, you would have to call them. You don't have to say anything, but I know what I'm talking about. So, the promise has been made, but the promise has been broken. What happened with Abraham? Look at this, that God made Abraham a promise and he couldn't find anyone to swear by. A lot of people say, I swear on my mother's life, my father's life, my auntie's life. But God looked around and he found no one that he could swear by. So what did he do? He swore by himself. And he says that if this does not come to pass, I am no longer God. So one thing he knew that once he said it, it was going to come to pass. So he told Abraham that I will make you the father of many nations. He told him that he would make him the father of us all. But Abraham was without child. But the Bible in Hebrews 6 told us that Abraham waited. And what did Abraham do while he waited? While he waited, his faith was sure. So he threw down an anchor. I wonder if any of us have an anchor that we want to throw down right now and say, I don't care what anybody says. I have been made a promise by God that what he says will come to pass. So what I am doing right now, I am have my anchor rather secured in God's promise. I have my anchor rooted in God. It does not matter what the circumstances may say right now. It may not matter whatever happens right now. I know that my anchor is secure in God's promises. What is happening right now? We have a pandemic. A pandemic that has taken the lives of so many people. But I am so grateful to God today that he has kept us. He has kept us secure and safe. Our faith is deep rooted in him. Look, we had somebody that walked before us. Most of us here are second generation. And what has happened is that our parents, when they came, they were treated different to how we are treated in the second generation. What happened was, is that they could have turned around and said, I am not happy here. I am going back home. But what they did, they threw down their anchor. They said, it does not matter how I am treated. It does not matter what people will say about me. I am going to stand flat-footed on the promise that if I just trust in God, if I just put my hope and my trust in God, I know that everything is going to be okay. So what happens now is that I then come along and I have got to secure myself to that same anchor. I have to throw my anchor deep. I 
miracles, the wind will come, the rain will come, the rain will fall, and if I am not secure, then it will destroy my anchor. So today, what am I saying? I am saying that somebody has already stood the test of time. There is already a testimony. So what does the song say? I believe that if God can help that person, I know that he can help me. So I'm encouraging you today to stand fast. I want you to stand secure in the knowledge that whatever God says he will do, he will do. Don't worry about the pandemic. Just keep on holding on. Keep on steadfast. Keep on doing what you know how to do because your anchor is secure. God bless you today. Keep your anchor secure in Jesus. God bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Oh uh -huh.
anchor secure did this present you with on putting on this year's Windrush program? Uh, Nick, it's um, been a real challenge um, and as much as, as it has been um, an adventure and learning process with regards to using Zoom. Um, it's been amazing how um, we've had our um, weekly or monthly committee meetings mm -hmm. and how we've actually brought the program together with regards to the Windrush event this year. Um, an example, for instance, is how um, we started off initially by using the WhatsApp system, which allowed us no more than about four people. Sure. Uh, I think that that obviously gets a bit problematic with the size of your committee. And... Um, when it comes to Zoom, I think a lot of us are in a position where we wonder what we did without it. Yeah. it. It's become incredibly important. Not only Zoom, obviously, there are other similar programs that you can use, but the whole idea of FaceTime and video messaging has become vital to the way everyone does business. That's, that's, that's so true. Going on from there, what has actually 
um, opened up is whereby we used to email our agenda, but the agenda can actually go also within the Zoom meeting and directed from there. So that for me was really an experience and a learning process as to how we have moved so quickly towards technology and bringing it into our homes and our meeting rooms. So obviously the UK government had set the date of 21st of June, which was called by many Freedom Day for the total relaxation of any lockdown restrictions. However, as we now all know, that's been postponed for uh, uh, just over three weeks at the time of broadcast. And uh, obviously, the official Windrush Day as prescribed by the British government is on Tuesday the 22nd. Um, so what challenges did you face putting on events there and, and what are we actually going to be seeing on the 22nd? Okay, um, yes, it was a setback because we planned around back to life. That was the whole idea sure. of um, ensuring that we stage it in town, was to help to unlock the town and bring back that sense of freedom. Um, so we chose that theme, back to life, from Jazzy B, Soul to Soul. Hmm. Um, but on the day, we have also, we were presenting um, Phase 2 Steel Band, which is the second generation reality of the original guys who started the steel band here in, in Ipswich and Suffolk um, from that first generation that came to Ipswich around the, the early 50s. So we will be having um, Phase 2 Steel Band, which is a young generation. And the other good thing about that, it's a mixed band. So you have white guys in it as much as you've got black guys and they were all born in this country. So it shows you really that with Windrush, it has really, um, shall I say, embedded the white and the black community together. And for me, I see that as a way forward. And on that day, we'll be having from 12 noon, the steel band, and then we'll be having a few speeches by committee members and the mayor will be present also. So, yeah, we have um, managed to navigate around presenting a day at the town hall. Okay, so this will be taking place on the Cornhill? That will be taking place at the Cornhill, which is the um, town hall. Yes, so yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I think we can strongly assume that most of the people listening to this will be uh, fairly well aware of what Windrush is and what it signifies, but for those who have maybe tuned in that are from a, a background or a heritage where Windrush wasn't such an important thing, or maybe some younger people from the Caribbean community whose parents have not really told them much about Windrush, why should we, 73 years on, remember Windrush? Why 73 years on? Why should we? Because it's been part and parcel of, I would say, British history. Because what we have got, we've developed uh, a multicultural, as much as a multi-faith community here in, in Ipswich and Suffolk and the country at large. And the country has changed, the country has um, integrated um, so much. As we walk through the town today, we see the different individuals and people moving around and actually engaging. So I would say it's a history which is coming out of the Second World War. So we could say 73 years on, where Europe was at war with itself. Um, 
and today we can all celebrate the peace and the contribution that people from the Caribbean region, including Guyana, which is based on the South American coast. So I would say um, it's important for the, we're now running maybe four generations in some cases, five generations. So I would say it's, it's very important for the population at large to know the history of the contributions and the integration and the peace that's been kept, not just war peace, but how for 73 years as people have integrated together that there has not been, especially here in Ipswich and Suffolk, any major eruption. So I would say those are the important parts that we need to keep on building a history that generations after generations will be able to learn and understand. Charles Challenger, Chair of the Ipswich Rindrust Select Committee, thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. The poem is about the youngest passenger on the Windrush as he prepares to board the ship which will take him from the Caribbean to a new life in England. Windrush child. Behind you, Windrush child. Palm trees wave goodbye. Above you, Windrush child. Seabirds asking why. Around you, Windrush child. Blue water rolling by. Beside you, Windrush child. Your Windrush, Mum and Dad. Think of Storytime Yard and Mango Mornings and New Beginnings, doors closing and opening. Will things turn out right? At least the ship will arrive in midsummer light. And you, Windrush child, think of Grandmother telling you, don't forget to write. And with one last hug, what good walk good and the sea will carry on spinning and from that place england you tell her in a letter of your windrush adventure stepping in a big ship not knowing how long the journey or that you're stepping into history bringing your caribbean eye to another horizon grandmother's words your shining beacon learning how to fly the kite of your dreams on an English sky. Windrush child, walking good, walking good, in a mind-opening meeting of snow and ice. John Agard, Windrush child. Mm -hmm.